Our first lesson this morning is from the Acts, the 25th chapter, 23rd through the 27th verses. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing, with the chief captains and principal men of the city, at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. But it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. Perhaps an explanation will be in order so that you may more clearly understand the second reading of Scripture. Paul is being brought in before three judges, and we'll be thinking about those judges in just a few minutes. We'll think about the judges because they teach us each one a lesson. It's the way it always is when God brings his power to bear upon someone and when Paul stands before a Roman governor whose name is Felix and he makes a certain comment, it tells us a great deal about that judge. And then when Paul stands before another Roman judge and speaks to him, and we see his reaction to Paul's testimony, and then a Jewish leader, a king, and his reaction to Paul. Let me begin by reading about these second and third persons. They start with um, verse 23, really, of chapter 25. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came in full state, and they entered the audience chamber accompanied by a king, by high-ranking officers and prominent citizens. On the orders of Festus, Paul was brought up, and then Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man. The whole body of the Jews approached me both in Jerusalem and here loudly insisting that he had no right to remain alive. But it was clear to me that he had committed no capital crime. And when he himself appealed to his imperial majesty, I decided to send him. But I have nothing definite about him to put in writing for our sovereign. Accordingly, I brought him up before you all, and particularly before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this preliminary inquiry, I may have something to report. There's no sense, it seems to me, in sending a prisoner without indicating the charge against him. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that it is before you that I am to make my defense today upon all the charges brought against me by the Jews, particularly as you are expert in all Jewish matters, both our customs and our disputes and therefore I beg you to give me a patient hearing. 
my life from my youth up, the life I led from the beginning among my people and in Jerusalem, is familiar to all Jews. Indeed, they have known me long enough and could testify if they only would, that I belong to the strictest group in our religion. I lived as a Pharisee, and it is for a hope kindled by God's promise to our forefathers that I stand in the dock today. In skipping down, I myself once thought it my duty to work actively against the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. It was I who imprisoned many of God's people by authority obtained from the chief priests. And when they were condemned to death, my vote was cast against them. In all the synagogues I tried by repeated punishments to make them renounce their faith. Indeed, my fury rose to such a pitch that I extended my persecution to foreign cities. On one such occasion, I was traveling to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. And as I was on my way, your majesty, in the middle of the day, I saw a light from the sky more brilliant than the sun shining all around me and my traveling companions. We all fell to the ground. And then I heard a voice saying to me in the Jewish language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you, this kicking against the barb. I said, tell me, Lord, who are you? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But now rise to your feet, stand upright. I have appeared to you both for a purpose, to appoint you my servant and witness, to testify both to what you have seen and what you shall yet see of me. I send you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, so that by trust in me they may obtain forgiveness of sins and a place with those whom God has made his own. And so, King Agrippa, I did not disobey the heavenly vision. I turned first to the inhabitants of Damascus and then to Jerusalem and all the country of Judea and to the Gentiles and sounded the call to repent and turn to God and to prove their repentance by deeds. That's why the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to do away with me. But I had God's help. And so to this day I stand and testify to great and small alike. I assert nothing beyond what was foretold by the prophets and by Moses, that the Messiah must suffer and that he must be the first to rise from the dead and would announce the dawn to Israel and to the Gentiles. While Paul was thus making his defense, Festus shouted at the top of his voice, Paul, you're raving. Too much study has driven you mad. I am not mad, Your Excellency, said Paul. What I'm saying is sober truth. The king is well versed in these matters, and to him I can speak freely. I do not believe that he can be unaware of any of these facts, for this has been no hole in a corner business. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophet? I know you do. Agrippa said to Paul, much more of this, Paul, and you will be making a Christian out of me.
Much or little, said Paul. I wish to God that not only you, but all those who also are listening to me might become what I am apart from these chains. Amen. Now that the selection for the Pope has been made, I think I can tell this story since I won't influence anyone's decision. Uh, <laughs> there was a man from Scotland who came over here to be a preacher, and of course the Scots wear clerical collars, and he was a fellow who was kind of chubby-faced, and he was a dead ringer for Cardinal Spellman. And uh, it so happened that he used to often be preaching in New York City, and uh, he would really startle passers-by when they looked at him in his clerical garb and thought that he was the uh, cardinal himself. Well, one Sunday, he was going to preach in a baccalaureate sermon, and like I frequently am doing, he was rushing around to get to the school, and he was already late. His wife was trying to help him get his academic garb together and pushing him toward the car and getting the in the car with him. And then he started driving like a madman to get there on time. But suddenly, he looked in the rearview mirror, and he saw the blue lights flashing, and a policeman pulled him over to the side. And uh, he pulled his academic gown up a little bit so that it uh, made his clerical collar show. And, <laughs> and uh, the good Irish cop uh, was taken back when he looked and thought he was seeing Cardinal Spellman. And uh, he was so taken back that all he could say was, Now, Father, we know that you're going somewhere to save somebody's soul, and that's why you were traveling in such a hurry. Uh, but if you will, sir, take your time and save your own soul and body too. And uh, so he thanked the officer very much, and, and he said, I'll do that, officer. And then he drove off. Well, as the, he was driving away, his wife, who didn't like the hypocrisy of it, turned to him and she said, now, honey, you know who he thought you were. And he said, yes, but I wonder who he thought you were. <laughs> now that that important point has been made, <laughs> There were three judges before whom Paul stood. Paul spent a lot of his time in jail. And it's a good thing that he did for us because so much of the New Testament was written by him and written by him while he was placed in jail. He was placed in jail because he who had been the great persecutor of the Christian faith had become its most stalwart and eloquent advocate. Paul was a tremendous force for God in this world. He was a great force for Jesus Christ, and he's left his mark on civilization in a way that no public relations official would ever be able to do with anybody. When you stop to think about him and about the fact that he didn't even have a mimeograph machine or a public address system, I've often thought if he went on his missionary journeys today, he'd have to have another boat hauling literature and back at it. Uh, and yet look what God does with one little soul yielded entirely to him. He described himself in the passage that we had for study last week in that ecstatic vision through which he passed or trance or rapture or whatever it was. He did not know whether he was in or out of the body, but he knew that he was in Christ. I knew a man in Christ. And that's a great definition for a Christian. Well, Paul was arrested, arrested frequently by his own Jewish brothers 
because they could not bear the thought that Jesus of Nazareth, the suffering Messiah, should be the Messiah of whom they had read in the Old Testament scriptures. And it was for this reason that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. And you remember he was almost lynched and by mob violence put to death. And the captain of a Roman band of soldiers rushed to the rescue and saved Paul from being murdered on the spot and took him into protective custody because he heard Paul say to him in the Greek or Latin language that he was a Roman citizen. And then you remember that Paul addressed the Jews who were there in the, their language, the Hebrew. And uh, he gave a testimony to Jesus which only caused them to be aroused all the more to have him put to death. And so for safekeeping, Paul had to be taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And in Caesarea, he was brought first before a Roman judge whose name was Felix. The name Felix means happy. But Felix's life was far from happy. He ought to have been happy because according to the, what I've been able to read from Tacitus and Suetonius and from Josephus and others, he was, I believe, the only slave who ever gained such prominence to become a freedman and then to actually become the Roman governor. And this is what happened to Felix. He did this largely because he had a brother who had become a favorite of the Emperor Claudius. Well, anyway, uh, Felix had risen to this prominent place and had been for some six years or so uh, there in Caesarea. And it was his business to oversee the matters of Rome uh, where these Jews were concerned. And so Paul had been brought to him. And Felix had a Jewish wife. Her name was Drusilla. She was, according to an ancient record, she was an incredibly beautiful person physically. But like a lot of people can be, she was pretty on the outside, but rotten on the inside. She came from the Herod, that same line which had seen the innocent slain when the baby Jesus had been born in an effort to kill him. That same Herod line in which John the Baptist had had his head taken from him because a voluptuous woman named had danced in the presence of the king Herod and he had sworn away in a drunken fit of debauchery that the damsel could have anything she wanted up to half of his kingdom. And she had, upon the instructions of her mother, asked for the head of John the Baptist in a platter. And for the sake of those who were there, he had to fulfill his drunken oath, and John the Baptist was killed. It's interesting that when Jesus was taken before that Herod, that he never said one word. That Herod was curious about Jesus. Perhaps he wanted to see him perform some miracle, but Jesus never said a single word to him. And then... There was another Herod, the Herod who had consented to the first Christian martyr, James, uh, the brother of our Lord, not the first martyr, but James was put to death there. This woman comes from a background of people who had been interested in things concerning the Messiah. And so Felix, her Roman husband, if you use the word loosely, Felix thought it might be interesting to have Paul, this great exponent of this 
faith in the Messiah, this one called Christ, whom Paul alleged to be Jesus of Nazareth, who had risen from the dead, to have him come before them and to speak. It was sort of a command performance. So we read that Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, and sending for Paul, he let him talk to him about faith in Christ Jesus. But when the discourse turned to questions of morals and self-control and coming judgment, Felix became alarmed, and he exclaimed, that will do for the present. When I find it convenient, I will send for you again. The King James translation of the same passage is much more dramatic because it says that when Felix reasoned with them concerning righteousness and temperance and judgment, when Paul reasoned with Felix concerning righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, that Felix trembled. Now, no one ever made a greater claim to the power of a sermon than that, that this dissolute Roman governor should have actually been so affected by Paul's discourse to him upon that occasion that he who had seen it all and heard it all, that he would have his knees smiting each other and his hand trembling and his heart up in his throat. They thought they would be entertained. But so far from being entertained, Paul gave a brief but powerful three-point sermon. I'm sure had some of our people gotten to him with their good pragmatic counsel, they might have said, look, Paul, you have a great opportunity to be freed. Everyone knows that you are a powerful wit. Everyone knows that you can engage people in conversation and you think very powerfully and that you can speak powerfully. Now listen, Felix can set you free and think how much good you could do if you would only be set free from this jail in Caesarea. But Paul, true to his commission from God, goes right into the presence of Felix and speaks upon those things which anyone else would have told him. They would have said, Paul, for God's sake, don't talk about divorce. He's been married three times. And Paul remembered that Drusilla, Drusilla's been through two of So whatever you do, stay away from the seventh commandment. Don't talk about adultery. And Paul, remember his record. This man's had people assassinated and killed in order to further his ambitions, and he wouldn't hesitate at putting you to death. And what does Paul do? The first point of his sermon is righteousness. That means a right relationship to God, and that includes the commandments that have to do with God. It means a right relationship with man. He speaks of righteousness concerning this man who had taken bribes and the scriptures are full uh, of condemnation of such conduct. But Paul spoke just that way to Felix. And then he speaks to him of temperance. This is something that seems to have fallen in oblivion. When I was a little boy, I remember we used to have the temperance lesson in Sunday school. And we talked about the business of drinking and about its hazards and its dangers. And now in a day and an age when we see alcoholism as the third major health problem in America, in a time when we see its highest and most frequent incidence now occurring among teenagers, even 10, 11, and 12-year-olds, and then with all these religious conference grounds around Montreat and Ridgecrest and Lake Junaluska over on the other side of Waynesville and 
and then the YMCA campground, the Dorothy Walls, all of these conference grounds. We talk about having liquor by the drink. And then we talk about having our wonderful alcoholic rehabilitation center over at Black Mountain. Now, I love alcoholics. I feel great sympathy for them. My father was an alcoholic. He was a beast, and my mother, when he was drunk, he would beat her onto the ground and stomp her. My twin brother is an alcoholic who is 100% disabled. No one could be any more sympathetic than I am with a person whose will is broken, and I'm thankful for the hospital and those who work with them there. But I know what a burning terror comes over a man who wants to drink, who is fighting against it, because I've gotten out of bed and gone to sit up with them sometimes at night when they were fighting the desire to drink. It doesn't make much sense to me to vote in liquor by the drink right next to a place where you build an alcoholic rehabilitation center. That makes about as much sense as finding a well that's full of typhoid fever and saying, now, in order to have more tax revenue, we'll build a hospital to take care of everybody that gets typhoid fever. There was a time when Christians were different when they were converted. They counted the cost, and their wives, their children could see they're different. The other night at prayer meeting, Brown Hoyt made a tremendous point when he pointed out to us that the words born again don't really mean much anymore. That evangelical doesn't mean much anymore, it's being inflated. Because there's not a corresponding conduct to go with it. I am my brother's keeper. I do have a responsibility. Certainly I may exercise my privilege and liberty as a Christian and drink if that were what I felt would be the best thing to do, but I don't. I am a teetotaler, and I wouldn't be worth the shoe leather I'm standing on if I didn't commend it to you in light of all the trouble that we see round about us. I know that there are a great many other sins that are equally bad uh, than these about which we're talking now, but I know that temperance is one thing that we could leave, uh, could follow, and that alcohol is one thing we could leave off to the glory of God and be a great blessing to a lot of people. You know, at Columbia Seminary, when we used to go there 25 years ago, you had to go to chapel about four times a week, and you heard preachers, preachers, preachers. And it's amazing, all these learned brothers that you forget. But one day someone brought a man uh, in to speak in chapel. And all the people who had tired of hearing about German higher criticism and Bart and Bruner and Tillich and Bultmann and all that bunch, they waked up because this old guy said that he had been in Fulton Tower, the jail in Atlanta, 126 times over a period of some 14 years arrested for public drunkenness. But he said, for the last nine years, I have not had a drop to drink, and the reason is that I belong to someone else now, and he is not thirsty. <laughs> you can remember a sermon like that because it speaks from experience. And when people see that your faith in Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life, you don't have to uh, make a big deal out of it, but you can say no thank you. You can say no thank you because it might hurt someone else. If I could give up some of the things that I give up in order to keep my heart from forming plaques and to, and to keep it beating, if I could play football and abide by the rules of training in order to win a, a letter jacket from a football coach, then why shouldn't I love Jesus 
enough to give up some things so that young, young people who were watching me would not stumble and fall because I had put a stumbling block in their way. I stood by the grave of a Southeast Conference athlete, all Southeast Conference. I used to see him with his five-rated Kappa key as he came to our church. I have broken through the window to get into his home when he was drunk. He was an alcoholic. I loved him, and I worked with him as long as he lived. And opening the refrigerator to get a can of beer, he fell backwards and struck the corner of a window, and it killed him. And I had his funeral, and I stood on a cold, snowy day by his graveside, thinking of the wasted talents and ability of a person who was one of the most wonderful men that I've ever known, except for that one area of his life where he was so tortured and so defeated. And I saw a man there who had a cashmere overcoat on, very expensive-looking jewelry, and he kept mopping the tears out of his face with his handkerchief. And I asked the lawyer who had driven me over there, because this man that I, of whom I'm speaking who had died was an attorney, I said, who was that man who wept so profusely at the grave? I, I said, his heart was really broken. And he said, that man gave our friend probably the first drink he ever took in his life. And so, you see, we have a responsibility there. And it's something that we ought to be well aware of. Well, to go on, he reasoned with him concerning another thing that's fallen into oblivion, and that's judgment to come. The other night at prayer meeting, Dr. Spence spoke to us about judgment from the 13th chapter of Matthew, and he cited C.S. Lewis's little book, The Problem of Pain. He told how Lewis says in this book that pain plants plants the flagpole of truth in a diseased organ. If you get a toothache, you can be pretty well assured that there's a cavity there, some rottenness, some exposed nerve, some pain that comes. Lewis goes on to say that he does not like to teach about the doctrine of hell, but because Jesus speaks about it and speaks about it plainly, we had best realize that it's true. We don't have to go to hell. The Lord God sent his son into this world to die upon the cross to bear the price of our sin. And there's no need for anyone in the sound of my voice to go to that place. But we must accept the fact that it's real and it's just as long as heaven is. But when we've thought about it, Dr. Spence told us in citing C.S. Lewis that there was one caution. One caution, and I have done, in order to rouse modern minds to an understanding of the issues I have ventured to introduce in this chapter a picture of the sort of bad man we most easily perceive to be truly bad. But when the picture has done that work, the sooner it is forgotten, the better. In all discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation, not of our enemies, nor our friends, since both these disturb the reason, but of ourselves. This chapter is not about your wife or about your husband or your son, nor about Nero or Judas Iscariot. It is about you and it is about me. And that's important for us to remember. So Paul reasoned with him concerning the judgment to come and Felix trembled. And he must have yelled, guards, Guards, come and take this prisoner away. And then he must have looked at Drusilla and said, let's get this stuff out of our mind. Let's go someplace else. 
He said to Paul, I'll see you on some more convenient season. Well, there is a time when the Spirit of God moves us when we need to respond. So we need to keep that very much in mind. William Jennings Bryan was a great orator in this country. And once he was riding in a taxi cab with Clarence Edward McCartney across Chicago when he passed the convention hall where he had made his famous uh, cross of gold speech. And Dr. McCartney said, this must bring back a lot of memories to you. And William Jennings Bryan looked at it and said, yes, it does. And Dr. McCartney said, I'm sure that you've made other speeches in your life that were just as great as that one. To what do you attribute the success of that particular speech? And William Jennings Bryan, the great orator, said this. He said, yes, I suppose that I have made other speeches just as great. But that convention was my opportunity, and I made the most of it. Then leaning his head back on the cushion of the taxi cab, and with a look of reminiscence in his great eyes, he said after a moment's silence, and that's about all we do in this life, use or lose our opportunities. Felix trembled, but he lost his opportunity. There's an old Appalachian ballad that you can almost hear the plaintive notes that Dulcimer playing. It says, I dreamed the great judgment morning had dawned. I dreamed that the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered before the white throne. Oh, what weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried to the rocks and to the mountains they prayed but their prayers were offered too late. The soul that put off salvation, not today, I'll be saved by and by. No time now to think of religion, at last had found time to die. And so, Felix trembled but did nothing else. Quickly I can dispose of the other two judges in just a word. Paul went before Festus, who replaced Felix after two years, Festus was a very good civil servant. He did an admirable job in his reign there. And Paul was put before him, and he didn't know what to say to uh, Paul because he was not familiar with the Jewish faith. But there was the last of all the Jewish kings, and from that day until this, there has been no Jewish king in Jerusalem. But there was a man by the name of Agrippa, who was a Jew, and who knew the Old Testament and who knew about Isaiah 53 and who knew all of the passages that related to the coming of the Messiah and who knew all that Moses had said. And so Festus thought it would be a grand thing when this man paid a courtesy visit on him to bring this Paul into his presence and let him talk about this new sect that seemed to have so much to do with the Jews and made them so angry. And so Agrippa said that he would like to do this. And so Agrippa, Agrippa and Festus, met in the resplendent Roman capital at Caesarea. And there in the marbled hall of justice, in pomp and great ceremony, 
The Jews wore purple for royalty, and King Agrippa would have his purple robe on. With his circlet of gold, the Romans wore scarlet red. What a wonderful scene it must have been when they brought in this prisoner with chains. And he stood there in a coarse weaver's gown which he had made probably with his own hands. What would you say? He gave his testimony. He told about that time on the road to Damascus when the light brighter than a thousand suns had shone about him and those who were traveling with him and how he had fallen to the ground and had heard the voice of Jesus speaking to him. And Saul of Tarsus, who had persecuted believers in Jesus, now becomes a believer in him himself and testifies to his resurrection from the dead because he has met the living Christ. Festus could not bear this, and so he shouted at the top of his voice. He literally screamed, Paul! Paul, you're mad! A rapid cataract of staccato sentences that tumbled out of Paul's lips and the light that shone in his eyes as he told his experience had all gripped Agrippa and Festus. But Festus thought he was crazy. And he said, Paul, you're mad. Your great learning has driven you mad. And there are people, if you follow Jesus Christ, will say you're mad too. There are people who will say that. Years ago, when the British were fighting the French in, up in Canada, a gr great general who was quite an eccentric person, whose name was Wolfe, gained a lot of victories, but he had offended some of the old field marshals of Britain. And so one of them went before the king and said to him that he should uh, get rid of General Wolfe. He said, he is mad. And the king said, I wish he would bite some of my other generals <laughs> so that they would have his same madness <laughs> and win some battles. And this is what I say about the accusation here, that Paul is mad. Would to God that he would bite me so that I could be mad. Would to God that the Holy Spirit would bite each of us so that we might have the same madness that Paul had. You remember they came to Jesus one time wanting to take him away be, uh, and present him to his brother and to his mother uh, because they said uh, he is beside himself. That means mad. So when you live for Jesus, you may find that derision comes. And then Agrippa is the most pathetic of all. And that's the doubt that comes. Our friend who wept this morning in your presence here, because his heart is tender to the things of God, wanted very much to be sure of salvation. He wanted very much to know that his salvation did not depend upon his holding out, but upon Christ holding him. So he came with his Bible, and we looked at the verses from Scripture where Jesus tells us that no man shall pluck them from my Father's hand. We talked of how when we belong to Jesus Christ, he comes to live in our heart. And that's where the big difference comes in. And so when Paul homed in on Agrippa and reminded him of all of the Old Testament scriptures that predicted one who would go and die on a cross to bear sin, and of one who would be raised from the dead, and Festus shouted, he's mad, but Paul knew 
that he had Agrippa right on the edge of his seat. So he said, Agrippa, I know you believe the prophets. And Agrippa said wistfully, and I realize there's controversy about this translation, but I've studied it carefully. Agrippa said wistfully, I believe, much more of this, Paul, and you would be making a Christian out of me. You ever had a person say to you, if I could just be around him a little bit longer, I think I would have become a Christian. Robert Louis Stevenson said that about James Chalmers, who went out to the Pacific as a missionary. Oh, if I had only known you as a boy, how different my life would have been. Now, what has Paul testified to? He has testified to the living Christ who changed his life. And when Paul had finished this to Agrippa, he said, Agrippa, I would that not only you, but all of you soldiers who are here and all of you people who are just gathered here listening, I wish everyone here were just like I am, and he must have stretched up his arm with the chain on it. I wish that you were just like I am, except for these chains, that you know Jesus and knew him as your Lord. Now then, do you know Jesus as your Lord? Why was Paul so gripped by him? And what difference will it make for you in your daily life about his resurrection? We had a girl in our home this summer who visited from Duke Medical School. Her job is to work with dying children. Hard task to talk to mothers and fathers of little children who have terminal diseases. We talked at some length about this. I told her about my friend, Joe Bailey. Joe has had three children to die. One a little boy who was five who died with leukemia. One a little boy that lived only six weeks and then died after surgery. One a son, 18 years old, who died in a sledding accident. And so Joe is qualified to speak when it comes to this. He said that after his five-year-old had died and they had buried him, he'd driven out following the herd to the cemetery with his heart heavy. That the next day he went back to the hospital there in Chicago to thank the doctors who had taken care of him during the months preceding his death. While he was waiting, the receptionist pointed to a little boy and the little fellow happened to be just about the same age of Joe's little boy. And she said, that little boy has the same problem that your son had. And that's his mother sitting by him. So Joe went over and sat down by her. He didn't say anything for a while. And then he spoke. It's hard to bring them in here for these checkups every two weeks, isn't it? She said, I die every time I do. I said, but isn't it good to know that even though there is no medical hope that after he's died, he will be completely released from all the pain and inabilities that he has now? And she said, if I could only believe that. But I believe that when I put him under the ground and cover him with dirt, I'll just have to forget that I ever had a son. Joe said, I'm glad I don't believe that. 
because yesterday we covered our little boy with dirt. She said, you look like an intelligent person. How could you possibly believe that there's anything more for a little boy or for you after this life than there is for a dog or any other animal? He said that in all of his life, he'd never had any question put to him that hit him as hard as that. But he had his answer. He said, I believe it because one man died and was raised from the dead never to die again. And that was Jesus Christ. One old document about Jesus, and I close. This is why Paul could be so brave. You see, Jesus Christ was God's man, but he was born of a woman and cradled in a manger. He was so much God that heaven offered its congratulations with a multitude of angels. He was so much man that he became hungry, but he was so much God that he took a little boy's lunch and fed 5,000 people. He was so much man that he became tired and weary, but he was so much God that he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. He was so much man that he fell asleep in a boat, but he was so much God that he rebuked the wind and the waves, and instantly they were quiet. He was so much man that he died upon a cross, but he was so much God that he thereby conquered death. He was so much man that he was buried in a barred tomb, but he was so much God that he rose from the dead to live forevermore. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And you can accept him as your Lord today. We won't sing the closing hymn, but we will stand for the benediction and the closing prayer. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can accept him today. It's just as important what you do when you walk down this aisle going out of the church as what you do when you walk forward coming down an aisle inside a church. But you can say yes to Jesus Christ and mean it. You can give as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of him as you understand. That's a perfectly honest proposition. And then you grow from there. And I commend my Savior to you. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great servant, Paul, that he was a man in Christ who no matter whether he stood before small or great, never pulled down his colors but held aloft the banner of Christ. We thank you for his speech before Felix, we thank you for his speech before Agrippa and Festus. And we thank you for the record that St. Luke has given us of it so that we could study it today. And now we are faced with what we shall do with this Jesus who is the Son of God and who lives never to die again. We thank you that he will come back again in great power and glory. And when he comes, we ask that we may be found faithful to him. If there are persons here who have not received him as Lord and Savior, bless them this day, that they may, while their hearts are tenderly moved, say yes to Jesus. If there are some whose love for Jesus is somehow worn thin, help them to love him more.
make a blessing for each person who labors under temptation and sickness and trouble. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.